say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, welcome to Morbidology. I'd like to take a second to thank my new Patreon supporters, Gabriella Amos, Natalie Gaysons, and Miranda. In return for your support on Patreon, you get exclusive episodes of Morbidology Plus, which aren't on the regular podcast platforms ad-free and early release episodes, true crime articles, polls, and you can even request a case for me to cover on Morbidology. Morbidology is a one-woman podcast and the support truly helps out and I am eternally grateful. Also, as I'm sure you know by now, I have a new investigative podcast series called The Shattered Window. It covers the case of Jacqueline Wallaby over the course of 10 episodes. We trawled through thousands of files and conducted hours of interviews so please check it out and make sure you're subscribed. Now on with today's episode. Welcome to Morbidology, the podcast. I'm your host, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. Join me weekly as I uncover some of the world's most heinous murders. It was Thanksgiving weekend of 1992 when Sarah Tokers was returning home to Marietta, Georgia from Bradenton, Florida with her two young sons. When she entered the darkened home, she saw a man standing in the kitchen armed with a shotgun. Initially, Sarah believed that the man was there to rob them. However, the man then forced the family back into their SUV parked on the driveway. Sarah and Fred Tokers were a wealthy couple living in Marietta, Georgia. They had first met in high school but were not close friends. 
than in the mid-1980s, Sarah saw Fred's name in the local newspaper. At the time, Fred was a Fulton County prosecutor, and Sarah called him up looking for legal advice for a friend. The couple started to date, and in 1985, they were married. Fred was a former Fulton County prosecutor before he became an Atlanta lawyer. Fred was in the fast lane, and his approach to success was swift, earning him the nickname Fast Fred. In 1992, he and Sarah were major contributors to Justice Lee Sears Collins' re-election campaign, with each giving the campaign $2,500. Fred had been trying to expand his prominence by taking on high-profile cases, as well as buying television adverts and releasing numerous press releases. In fact, he had represented Pauline Holyfield during her divorce from boxer Evander Holyfield and was also a key defence witness in the federal extortion trial of former Fulton County Sheriff Richard Langford. The couple had two young sons, Ricky, who was six years old, and Mike, who was four years old. Sarah volunteered as a teacher's aide at St. Judge Catholic Church in Sandy Springs twice a week, which was where her sons were enrolled. Before Sarah and Fred had children, Sarah worked as a teacher She was an exceptionally devoted mother who really enjoyed being in the presence of children. At school, she always joined in with the games. She would roll around the floor with the children, play games and sing songs. The other children at the school would remember her as being extremely upbeat and always wearing funky red boots. Jean Robinson, the director at the school, said that she always tried to pay Sarah for her help, but Sarah refused. She just wanted to be there around the children. The Tokers lived in a large home at 330 Kings Court in Kings Cove subdivision of Kings Cove in Marietta, Georgia. Their secluded house was nestled away from any heavy-travelled roads and was accessible by a twisting road which was dotted with trees. It was a safe and suburban neighbourhood where crime is only something that residents read about in the local newspapers. The family had decided that they would take a quick trip to Florida for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend of 1992. Sarah had family in Bredenton and she and the boys drove down while Fred flew to meet them there. Sarah had recently led a kindergarten drive to collect toys for needy children in time for Christmas and the family were ready for a much-needed break. From there, Fred went ahead to Montgomery in Alabama for a business trip, while Sarah, Ricky and Mike returned home alone. It was around 10pm on the 23rd of December 1992, when Ricky and Mike burst through the doors of the Young Life Christian Centre with a terrifying tale. They said that when they and their mother had been returning home from their trip in Florida, they were confronted by a lone gunman inside their home. The man ordered Sarah, Ricky and Mike into Sarah's white Toyota 4Runner and pointed a shotgun at Sarah's head as she sat in the driver's seat with one of her sons in the passenger seat beside her. The other one sat in the back seat beside the gunman. As she drove, Sarah begged the man not to hurt her children 
after driving around half a mile away. The man then told Sarah to drive into a dead-end street. When she refused and tried to pull over to the side of the road, the man pulled the trigger, shooting Sarah once in the back of the head and essentially blowing half of her head off. The car rolled to a halt in a field, and the man got out of the car and fled, leaving Ricky and Mike alone with the body of their mother and spattered with her blood. The two boys got out of the car and ran to the Young Life Christian Centre, which was nearby, screaming for help. Pat Banks was one of the first officers to arrive on the scene. He spoke with Forensic Files about this. One thing I always remember was she had long hair and the blood would just run down and just droplets would drop off of hair. The children hadn't been physically hurt, but the first thing I noticed when the ambulance doors opened up was the smell of vomit. Michael's shirt was off and he had gotten sick. They both spattered with the mother's blood. The following day, a description of the killer was publicly released. He was described as a black man who was slender in build. He was wearing dark jeans, a brown black coat and a green knit skullcap. No information regarding his height or weight were released, most likely because the two witnesses were only children. Investigators quickly got to working on the case. One of the first points of action was to try and determine, of course, who the killer was, but whether or not he had acted alone. Since the Tokers lived in a relatively secluded area, investigators wondered if the killer had acted alone or not. He would have needed to get out of the house somehow. According to neighbour Jack Scott, he had spotted a white van sitting outside the Tokers' house at around 10.30am on the day of the murder. He said that he noticed it because it was unusual for anybody to be parked outside, never mind a van. He said that when he returned home at around 9pm that night, the van was gone. Jack also stated that when he spotted the van, he also noticed that there was a white car in the garage that didn't belong to the family. This was also noticed by another neighbour who said he saw a white car with a driver in front of the house. He thought that it was very unusual but dismissed it as being a paper carrier. According to another neighbour, Bill Rhodes, the burglar alarm in the home had went off three times over the weekend, including Saturday night. Bill also said that around 10.30pm on the 23rd of December, the Tokar's dog came running over to his house with his leash on. Jack informed the media that the burglar alarm had been a relatively new purchase. He said that Sarah insisted on getting the burglar alarm because she was worried about their safety because of some of the high-profile cases that Fred had been working on. A number of residents of the King's Cove subdivision had burglar alarms. The homes were all $200,000 plus, and it was one of Atlanta's most affluent areas, with an average household income of $81,000. Bear in mind, this was 1992, and with the inflation rate, That would be an average of $150,000 today. Investigators confirmed what Bill stated in regards to the burglar alarm. They said that while the Tokers were in Florida over the holiday weekend, they responded to the alarm going off twice. This led to much speculation 
especially among the locals, that the murder was the result of a botched burglary. However, investigators said that this was unlikely. They said that the home had not been ransacked and most burglars would have been gone from the scene of a burglary before the families returned home from long holiday weekends. After all, they had the whole weekend to rob the house. Why wait until the final day? Moreover, they found it unlikely that a burglar would have brought along a shotgun with them. According to statistics, it's quite rare that a burglar kills the occupant of the home if they are interrupted. While it does happen, however, while it does happen, however, it's more likely that the burglar would kill the occupant then and there inside the house, not force them into their car and then kill them elsewhere. Investigators also admitted that they were quite stumped by the murder. A.B. Alred, chief of the Cobb Detective Bureau, said, It's a very bizarre case. Where it happened, the circumstances, the children being there. This one works on everyone's emotions, even hard detectives. Investigators also quickly stated that over the holiday weekend, the family's water heater broke the van parked in front of the house, which was seen by the neighbours, was very likely the repairman. They said that another car that was seen in the garage may have been a rental car which belonged to Fred, who had apparently returned home from Florida to let the worker into the house. By this point, investigators had given Fred a cursory interview where they asked basic details regarding his whereabouts. However, at the request of Fred's attorney, hard Weintraub, they needed to schedule a thorough interview after Sarah's funeral. As you all know, this is routine when it comes to any murder case, and Chief Alred said that Fred was not a suspect in the murder at this time. The murder completely terrified the community, and in the aftermath, many firms that sold burglar alarms saw a sharp spike in purchases. Fear was especially prominent in Atlanta's legal community, who worried that the murder was the result of a client coming back for revenge. One local attorney named Michael Hopman said, Most lawyers believe it is a Cape Fear come to life. If you're not familiar with Cape Fear, it's a 1991 movie about an ex-convict, terrorising his former public defender and his family. On the 3rd of December, over 300 loved ones of Sarah packed into St. Judge, the Apostle Catholic Church, in Sandy Springs, for her funeral. Fred was shaken and sobbing as he led the procession behind the casket. Inside the church, Reverend David Talley said, Words ring empty today. Words are an intrusion to the grief. How many thousand times has somebody asked, Why did this happen? Following the service, Sarah was buried at Arlington Memorial Park in Sandy Springs. Within just days of Sarah's murder, investigators announced that they were working on the theory that the murder was either a contract killing or a botched kidnapping, with either revenge or ransom as the most likely motives. While they had a theory and potential motivation, investigators said that there was such little evidence with no suspects that they feared that the case could go cold. After Sarah's funeral, investigators made arrangements to interview both Fred and his two sons. One thing in particular they wanted to get to the bottom of 
was information regarding Fred's case files and whether he had any enemies or potential motives. Deputy Chief James Arrowwood said that Fred wasn't a suspect in the murder, but said that he and his sons were the closest to Sarah and could potentially give them some information so that they could ascertain what or who to investigate. Furthermore, Ricky and Mike had witnessed the murder. When children are exposed to a traumatic event, they quite often shut down quickly and become upset. But according to Martha Christensen, a clinical social worker who worked in child psychiatry for 21 years, it's best for children to speak as early as possible to a therapist. Keeping the traumatic event bottled up could cause post-traumatic stress disorder in children. Before investigators had a chance to question Fred, there was a shocking revelation in the case when it was disclosed that before Sarah's murder, she had told a private investigator that she had hired that if anything ever happened to her, for him to go straight to police with his investigation. Sarah had hired Ralph Perdomo to conduct some kind of investigation. However, it wasn't publicly released what this investigation was in relation to. Fred's public relation agent, Brenda Fontaine, was quick to state. Her only speculation is that Fred represented some really strange people and that Sarah was more worried about them than Fred was. This revelation was the first break in the case and it revealed that the murder was even more complex than first expected. While no more information regarding the private investigator was released straight away, it implied that Sarah may have been afraid of something or someone. But who? Investigators were still saying that Fred wasn't a suspect, but shortly thereafter, it was revealed that a man named Fred Tokers had rented an apartment in Buckhead around a month before the murder. The woman who rented the apartment out said that she only met the man once and couldn't be sure if it was Fred, as in Sarah's husband. Or it was just a coincidence that somebody had the same name as him. Meanwhile, Fred still refused to speak to investigators. We've been attempting to get Mr. Tokars to come in and, and talk to us. Uh, we're having a difficult time getting him to come in. So we explained to him that he should know better than anybody how important it is that, that we get something rolling right away before the trail got cold. He said that he was devastated by the loss of his wife and needed a bit more time to grieve before speaking with investigators. In a prepared statement, he said, I have cooperated as best as I can and will continue to do so. I met with police for two hours on Monday and gave a preliminary statement. I will meet with police as soon as possible. The week after the murder, investigators released a composite sketch of a man who was seen driving in the Toker's neighbourhood less than an hour before she was murdered. The man was a passenger in a car and was described as being a light-skinned black man in his 30s with beard stubble and a toboggan hat which sounded similar to the description of the hat that the killer was wearing as described by Sarah's boys. Chief Alred said that the car was either a Toyota or a Datsun and would explain how the killer had gotten to Sarah's house. There was no description of the driver. 
Shortly thereafter, Fred offered a $25,000 reward for information that could lead to the apprehension of his wife's killer. He further stated that he would be asking for a leave of absence from work until mid-January, stating that the physical, mental and emotional pain of Sarah's murder had made it impossible for him to work. He then had a three-hour interview with investigators and admitted to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that around three years ago, he had an affair, but said that he and Sarah had patched things up and there were no issues in their marriage. During the interview with investigators, Fred had revealed that Sarah had a pretty large life insurance policy. So, Gary, do you have any idea who may have wanted to kill Sarah? Just can't even imagine it. What kind of insurance policies did you have on Sarah then? Sarah and I have the same type of insurance policies. One of them is for uh, $250,000. One of them is for a million. And I think that there's another one for, uh, for a half a million. Every marriage has its ups and downs, but I, I would be shocked if I thought that she was considering a divorce right now from me. Did she sleep with you? Yeah. Did she have sex with you? Yeah. While investigators had been extremely vocal in the past about Fred not being a suspect, Chief Alred said that they had not yet eliminated any suspects. Another angle that investigators were working was whether or not the murder was somehow linked to some dodgy work that Fred had been involved in. In June of 1991, Willie Harris, who was a vice president of Atlanta Entertainment Management Incorporated, who owned a number of nightclubs in Atlanta, was arrested by federal agents for accepting a shipment of cocaine at a motel. As it turned out, Fred had done some legal work for the corporation and had even worked as Willie's defence lawyer. Willie pleaded guilty in June of 1992 and was sentenced to 11 years in prison. The month after the guilty plea, Julius Klein, who was a business associate of both Fred and Willie, was shot dead in Detroit. His murder remained unsolved and investigators were looking into whether Sarah's murder could have somehow been linked to his murder. It would soon be revealed that Sarah hadn't hired a private investigator because she was afraid of some of the clients Fred had worked with. She had hired a private investigator because she believed that Fred was having an affair. According to Sarah's family, when Sarah was killed, they had no indication that anything in her marriage was amiss. They said they thought that Sarah was happy and that Fred was a great father and husband. One of Sarah's sisters, Joni Ambrusco Crane, said, He was the provider and the lawyer. Sarah was the mom and volunteer. We've always admired Fred because he was so ambitious and worked so hard. Her sisters also said that they couldn't currently speak about the state of Fred and Sarah's marriage because that may have been part of the investigation. As the investigation was underway, divorce lawyer Stephen Lobotis stated that Sarah had consulted with him at least twice about divorcing Fred, most recently a little more than a year before her murder. He confirmed that she had spoken both about divorce and about child custody, 
but he said that he could not disclose what they spoke about, specifically because of attorney-client confidentiality. By this point, it was quite apparent that the relationship between Sarah and Fred had a number of issues, and that Sarah's life had been insured for up to $2 million. The policies that Fred had purchased on Sarah were purchased in 1986 and 1987, and it wasn't known whether Sarah knew of these policies, or whether or not they had been increased since then. That was still something that the investigators were working on. Meanwhile, Cobb County investigators asked the FBI to assist in the case. They wanted violent crime investigators with the FBI to troll the nation for murders which were similar to the murder of Sarah. As Chief Alred said, What we're looking for is any similar type of crime happening, like a kidnapping with the victim shot in the back of the head. Shortly before Christmas, it was revealed that during questioning, Fred had claimed that he had a lack of memory and couldn't remember his activities. They said that Fred had refused to speak about certain clients he had worked with, and Deputy Police Chief J.D. Arrowwood said that solving his wife's murder should have been the most important thing. They further revealed that they had tried twice to get Fred to take a polygraph test. Their revelation was followed by Fred's attorney, Jerry Froelich, lambasting the investigation. He stated, What they are doing is unethical, improper and untrue. My client is innocent and he is being hung in the press. They're in the process of ruining the man. He accused the investigation of targeting Fred and not looking at other possibilities. In fact, he even said that Fred had taken an independent polygraph test and had passed. Chief Alred responded to Fred's attorney's comments and said that they had been bending over backwards to accommodate Fred and that they still wanted him to take a polygraph test that they conducted. As families worldwide were preparing for the big day on Christmas Eve, there was a major breakthrough in the case when it was revealed that Eddie Lawrence, who was one of Fred's business associates, and Curtis Rower had been arrested and charged with Sarah's murder, as well as three counts of kidnapping and one charge of armed robbery. In a news conference, investigators announced that Sarah had been murdered after she found information in Fred's safe that implicated her husband and his business associates in illegal activities. Investigation had uncovered that earlier on in the year, Fred had lent $70,000 to Eddie, and they believed that Fred knew the men who murdered Sarah as well as their motive in committing the murder, but had decided against cooperating. They further admitted that they weren't yet sure whether Fred knew that his wife was going to be killed before it happened. The key in cracking the case was the private investigator that Sarah had hired. Ralph Perdomo had told investigators working on the case that Sarah had been forbidden by Fred from looking in the safe. However, Sarah somehow managed to find the combination got inside the safe and found some incriminating evidence against Fred and his business associates, including Eddie, which revealed that they had been laundering drug money through businesses that they owned. 
Sarah made two sets of copies and Ralph handed those copies over to investigators. According to Ralph, Sarah had been collecting information which could go back years and had told him that if she ever vanished or was killed to go straight to police with the investigation they had been conducting. Ralph had further revealed that for reasons unknown when the family had gone to Florida for Thanksgiving, Fred had insisted on Sarah driving down with the boys, but insisted that he flew down. Then when it was time to leave, Fred said he needed to go to Montgomery for business, leaving Sarah and the boys to return home alone. When Fred had been interviewed by investigators, he had purposefully not mentioned Eddie at all when speaking about his business and business partners. You know that man? Teddy Lawrence. This man was never mentioned. Well, I'm not sure if I understand what you're talking about. You never told me anything about Eddie Lawrence. Well, you never asked me anything about him. Just hours after the arrests, Fred overdosed and was rushed to hospital where he was treated and then placed under psychiatric care. The family had been planning on going to Bush Gardens in Tampa, but Fred said that he had too much work to do and stayed behind. The overdose was determined to be a suicide attempt, and under Florida law, those who attempt suicide are ordered to undergo mandatory psychological examination. Meanwhile, the family were trying to celebrate Christmas for the sake of the boys. Sarah's father, John Ambrusco, carved the Christmas turkey, while the rest of the family showered Ricky and Mike with gifts and kept them busy throughout the day. Chief Charon said that he wanted the boys to come in to view a police lineup, but were giving them some time with their family first. He said, Those poor children have gone through hell. First they see their mother killed in front of them, and now this with their father. My heart really goes out for those toker boys. The day after Boxing Day, investigators on the case announced that Fred was a suspect in Sarah's murder. Then the following day, it was revealed that Curtis had admitted to investigators that he pulled the trigger, killing Sarah, but said that Eddie had told him to do it. However, Curtis's defence lawyer, Edwin Marger, then claimed that the confession was made under duress. He stated that Curtis had been alone with investigators for 12 hours before he saw him, and said that he believed that his client wasn't physically or mentally fit to be able to give any kind of statement. He also suggested that his client may have been under the influence of alcohol, marijuana and cocaine when he was arrested, and claimed that his client had no connection to Fred. He said that Curtis had never met, never spoken to or never received money from Fred. After several days, Fred checked himself out of the hospital and returned to Atlanta, Investigators announced they were once again wanting to interview Fred. Instead of meeting with investigators, however, Fred decided that his time would be better spent lashing out at the media. In a prepared statement, he spoke with reporters in downtown Atlanta. I emphatically deny any involvement in my wife's murder and any suggestion that I might have been involved in any way deeply hurts me. Unfortunately, after drinking too much... And after taking some back pain medication, I became very depressed and started to think of the lifestyle that I was losing. Not only my wife, 
but my, my whole lifestyle. In early January, Ricky was brought down to the police station to view a lineup. He was unable to pick Curtis out of the lineup. He pointed at a different man and said, He looks most like him. A police officer asked Ricky if he was sure, to which he replied with, I'm not. Days later, a hearing was held regarding the arrest warrants. Superior Court Judge Ralph Hicks ruled that the arrest warrants were flawed because they didn't contain sufficient evidence to determine that Eddie and Curtis had killed Sarah. During the hearing, testimony would be presented from Cobb County Detective Ron Hunton, who revealed that Curtis had told investigators he was holding the sawed-off shotgun, but it had went off when Eddie wrestled him for the gun. Curtis claimed that Sarah had refused to turn her vehicle into a dead-end street. She pulled over and Curtis opened the door to get out of the car. Moments later, Eddie appeared and ran over to the side door and a scuffle ensued. The shotgun went off accidentally, killing Sarah. However, neither Ricky nor Mike had said that any kind of scuffle had happened. They only said that there was one man in the car who pulled the trigger while sitting behind Sarah. Detective Hunton said that Curtis's sister and her boyfriend had told investigators that they had seen Curtis with a sawed-off shotgun and that he had admitted to murdering Sarah. They had told investigators that the morning after the murder, Curtis was acting very paranoid and very excited. Then when a segment on the murder appeared on the news, Curtis said, We did it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is there something interfering with your happiness or are you apprehensive about reaching out for help? BetterHelp is here to help you and they're today's sponsor of Morbidology. BetterHelp is not self-help. It's professional counseling available to you online or over the phone. BetterHelp is more affordable and accessible than traditional offline counselling, and they offer financial aid. Sadly, sometimes traditional offline counselling is not locally available for everybody, but BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide. They have licensed professional counsellors specialising in a broad variety of areas, including depression, sleeping, self-esteem, grief, and much more. Everything you share with your counsellor is confidential and they are matched to your specific needs. I want you to start living a happier life today. 
As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morbidology. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash morbidology. Before we continue with today's episode, I'd like to take a second to recommend a new true crime podcast that I've recently found, Fireside Crime. The hosts of Fireside Crime unleash their southern accents and somewhat dark humour on the true crime, conspiracies and scandals that rocked the nation, all while enjoying local beers, Fireside. Grab a beer or beverage of your choice and join them by the fire. Fireside Crime are available across all podcast platforms. While you're listening to this episode of Morbidology, make sure to subscribe. When Curtis allegedly confessed, he said that Eddie had offered him $5,000 to kill Sarah, stating that the money would come from a lawyer named Fred. He also said that Eddie came along with him to the house to make sure that he actually carried out the murder. They both entered the home before Sarah and the boys came home, and Eddie told Curtis not to fear because the burglar alarm had been turned off by Fred. According to Curtis, at one point during the attack, he had considered killing Ricky as well, because he was not cooperating. But he had been instructed by Eddie not to harm the children. Judge Hicks said that the investigators should have stated more specifically in their written request where the evidence had come from and how it had come to their attention. The original arrest warrant had revealed limited information regarding the case. He then decided that he would issue new arrest warrants. During a bond hearing in February, it was revealed that Curtis had told investigators that the $5,000 he was to be paid was to come to Fred. This was something that Curtis had also told to his sister and his sister's boyfriend before his arrest. Curtis testified in court and claimed that he never actually agreed to kill Sarah and thought that he would rob her but leave her unharmed. He said that when Sarah stopped the car, however, Eddie appeared and they struggled for the gun and it went off accidentally. He said that he wanted to make these statements publicly because he wanted to tell Sarah's family that he was sorry and that he had no intention of killing anybody. Investigators, however, said that the statements were self-serving, and that he and Eddie never wrestled for the gun. Shortly after the hearing, Curtis's sister, Tuesday Rower, was jailed as a material witness. As it would be discovered, Tuesday was a receptionist for Eddie, and she had said that she may have overheard Eddie talking about the murder plot on a phone call to a man named Fred. District Attorney Charon admitted that arresting Tuesday was certainly unusual, but said that this was not a usual case. Towards the end of February, the case went before the grand jury. They heard testimony from 10 witnesses, including Tuesday and one of Curtis's friends, who said he returned home that night with a shotgun and bloody tennis shoes. The friend's father said that outside the courtroom, she had been approached by Curtis's uncle, who called her a bitch. There was also testimony from Ederick Wheatler, a business associate of Eddie, who said that he had been approached by Eddie to kill Sarah. Both Eddie and Curtis were indicted on five felony counts, including malice murder, 
kidnapping, serious bodily injury, two counts of kidnapping and armed robbery. While it wasn't decided yet whether they would be facing the death penalty, District Attorney Charon said that he was seriously considering seeking it. Shortly thereafter, it was announced that they were seeking the death penalty and said that no formal deal for reduced sentences were offered. As investigators were still trying to figure the case out and collect evidence, it was revealed that in the march before Sarah's murder, she filed her will and her will left nothing to her husband. Shortly afterwards, it was announced that the murder trial of Curtis and Eddie would be moved out of Atlanta due to pre-trial publicity. In his first interview since his arrest, Eddie spoke with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and said that he was not involved in Sarah's murder. He said, They're trying to use me to get to Fred. I've had plenty of time to create a lie about him, but I'm not going to. I don't think he'll ever be arrested. Tell them, Eddie Lawrence said, there will be no plea bargain. I'm innocent. I will be found innocent. By this point in the investigation, Fred was still a suspect in his wife's murder. But as of yet, there was not enough evidence for an arrest. The FBI and Internal Revenue Service were still investigating the allegations of money laundering, influence peddling and tax evasion. Fred had closed his law practice, put up the family home for sale, liquidated his assets and moved to Palm Beach to live with his mother. Ricky and Mike were living with Sarah's parents in Florida and Fred visited them around once a week. The arrangement was informal and there was no kind of custody battle. Fred still had custody but they lived with their grandparents. However, in June, it was announced that Fred had filed a lawsuit against Sarah's parents to collect $1.75 million insurance on the life of Sarah. He claimed that John and Phyllis, Sarah's parents, were trying to stop payment of three policies that Fred had taken out on Sarah. He also filed for full custody of the boys, stating that John and Phyllis falsely believed that he was involved in Sarah's murder. Sarah's family responded to the lawsuit by suing Fred. The lawsuit was seeking to block Fred from collecting the three life insurance policies he had on Sarah's life. Shortly after Sarah's family filed the lawsuit, Fred was arrested in Palm Beach on federal charges that related to the FBI investigation into money laundering. Then the following week, Fred was indicted on charges that he murdered Sarah, as well as kidnapping and armed robbery charges. On the same day that the charges were handed down, Eddie changed his not guilty plea to guilty. His plea had been a negotiated plea which meant that the state would not be seeking the death penalty against him in exchange for his testimony in both Curtis's trial and Fred's trial. As it would be revealed, before Fred was arrested, Eddie had testified against him. He claimed that Fred had badgered him into finding someone to kill Sarah and to make sure that it happened on the day that she returned home from their Thanksgiving vacation. Although Fred knew that his two sons would be there, he ordered that Sarah be shot in the head so that she definitely could not survive. He said that he had followed Curtis and Sarah in his own car, and when Curtis shot Sarah, 
He fled from the car, jumped into his car, and they fled. Fred's defense attorney, Jerry Fulick, stated that his client was innocent and said that he was still in shock. He described the charges as trumped-up charges based on lies. Following his arrest, John and Phyllis were given temporary custody of Ricky and Mike. In just the space of nine months, the two boys had witnessed their mother being brutally murdered before their very eyes. And now their father had been arrested in connection with that murder. Detective Pat Banks was the one who took the boys when their father was arrested. He said that he took them to McDonald's and tried to calm them down. They were both crying as Detective Banks tried to explain to them that sometimes adults do stupid things and that they weren't to blame for anything. In the indictment following Fred's arrest, it was revealed that Fred had been involved in a massive drug trafficking and money laundering ring. The ring began in 1986, and eight men, one of which was Fred, used violence and intimidation tactics to protect their assets and avoid detection from authorities. The indictment read that they had resorted to kidnapping, torture and murder to protect their operations and themselves. Investigators alleged the ring maintained secrecy by threatening physical harm to anybody who may disclose the nature and scope of their operations. The ring controlled a number of nightclubs in the Atlanta area and used Fred's law practice to conceal the money made from drug trafficking. The indictment also said that members of the group transported cocaine from Miami and Los Angeles to the Atlanta area. A number of other men involved were arrested, but three of which were released on bond, William Carter, Aaron Hudson and James Mason. Two other men involved, Jesse Ferguson and Alex Yancey, had not yet been taken into custody. Julius Klein, the business associate of Fred who was shot dead in Detroit, was also involved in the ring and worked as a drug trafficker. In early November, it was announced that Fred would be facing the death penalty if convicted of Sarah's murder. When the one-year anniversary to the murder rolled around, Sarah's family spoke with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They said that Ricky and Mike still lived in fear that the man they described as the bad man with the pirate gun would return. As their aunt, Chrissy said, When you're little, your greatest fears are of the shadows the unknown, and the boogeyman. Their worst fears came true. In February, an 80-page trial brief was filed in the U.S. District Court, which revealed that Fred frequently took cocaine and would sniff around two grams per month. Shortly thereafter, Eddie's testimony before a federal grand jury was publicly released. He said that Fred had sought to have Sarah killed for $1 million because she planned on divorcing him, taking full custody of the boys and taking everything he had. He said she was going to take everything that he had and he had worked too hard for what he had and he wasn't going to let that happen, so she's got to die. That was the only way he saw out of it, you know. Eddie said that Fred had asked him twice in summer of 1992 to perform a contract killing. The prosecution was expected to use this testimony to establish a motive for Sarah's murder. The first trial was against Fred as well as his co-defendant, James Mason. 
They are being tried on charges they participated in a racketeering conspiracy involving drug trafficking, counterfeiting and laundering money through Atlanta's nightclubs. Fred was also charged with arranging the murder of his wife, but that trial would be later. The trial was to be heard by a federal jury. During opening statements, defence Froelich said that the murder of Sarah had been committed by Eddie, who he referred to as the ultimate con man. Assistant US Attorney Wilmer Parker said during opening statements that Sarah was killed because she was a ticking time bomb against Fred. By late 1992, a federal grand jury was closing in on the drug trafficking ring and Sarah was threatening to expose them. Attorney Parker said that Fred had agreed to pay Eddie around $900,000 of a life insurance policy that he had out on Sarah if he arranged her murder. Eddie then hired Curtis, who was a drug addict, to carry the murder out. There was testimony right away in the trial which tied Fred to drug deals and money laundering. Alex Yancey, a convicted drug dealer, was a former employee of Marvin Baynard, who was a partner of Eddie. Alex worked for Marvin, running cocaine to clients and then bringing back the cash. He said he had met Fred in early 1988 and Fred had offered to open an offshore bank account for Marvin for $10,000. He further stated that Fred laundered the drug money for one of his clients and said that he might have to make another one of his clients disappear. Marvin had testified to essentially the same thing. While the trial was on the racketeering charge, much of the trial focused on the murder of Sarah. Eddie was called as a prosecution witness. He once again reiterated his earlier story that Fred had wanted to pay to have Sarah killed because she wanted to divorce him and was going to expose their criminal activities. He said that as time progressed and he still hadn't found someone to kill Sarah, Fred became increasingly agitated. He said that when he asked Fred how it would affect Ricky and Mike, Fred said that they were young and they would get over it. Fred offered Eddie $25,000 and promised him almost $1 million more when the life insurance policies paid out. He also promised to invest $910,000 in businesses owned by him and Eddie and then give Eddie full control. Eddie said that he then approached Curtis, who was a known drug dealer who had allegedly killed people in the past. Under cross-examination, defence attorney Bobby Lee Cook tried to poke holes in Eddie's testimony and accused him of inconsistencies. He suggested that it was actually Eddie who killed Sarah. He asked, Isn't it a fact that she did see you, she recognised you and you grabbed the gun and she was shot? Eddie replied with, No. His testimony would be followed by testimony from Neil Wilcox, Sarah's brother-in-law. He told the jury that on the night that Eddie and Curtis were arrested, Fred was worried that he would be implicated in the murder. He was worried that the police would make a deal and that they would be using Eddie and Curtis to get to him. He also testified that Fred had once talked to him about the benefits of offshore investments and told him that it was a great way of hiding money from the IRS and from your wife. 
Other family members would testify about Fred's strange behaviour, both before and after the murder. Sarah's father, John, said that Sarah had told them that Fred was pressuring her to return to work, even though she wanted to be at home with their sons. In fact, Fred had even suggested that she work for him. John also revealed that after Sarah and the boys drove off from Florida to return home before she was murdered, Fred randomly called him to make sure that Sarah had left. A number of family members also testified regarding Sarah's behaviour before her murder. Her sister Christine said that Sarah had showed her a number of documents which suggested that Fred was hiding hundreds of thousands of dollars in offshore accounts. The names of the accounts were of their children, but inverted. Christine said that Sarah gave her a copy of the documents and told her to go straight to police if anything ever happened to her. Mary Rose Taylor, a cousin of Sarah, testified that Sarah had told her that Fred warned that if she divorced him, he would get full custody of the boys because of his political clout. One of Sarah's neighbours also told the jury that Sarah seemed elated when she told her that she had the goods on Fred, which meant that she could divorce him and get custody of their children. A recording of an interview between investigators and Fred was played out by the prosecution. In the interview, Fred referred to Sarah as the perfect wife, who he loved very much. He insisted that he had no idea that Sarah may have been planning on divorcing him before her murder. He said that they had their ups and downs and admitted that he had flings in the past, but as he said, it was always like, one time, you know. Fred was then called as a defence witness. He cried as he told the jury that his life had been ruined. He said that the media blamed Sarah's death on him. He denied that he had threatened to take the boys away from Sarah. The defence put forward the theory that it was Eddie who had killed Sarah because Fred was about to stop financing his real estate and construction enterprises. Fred said, I couldn't really trust him to manage money. I told him I wasn't going to give him any more money. He ended his testimony by reading out part of his suicide note. It read... I am sorry for the pain and sorrow my lifestyle has inflicted upon you. I never wanted Sarah or anybody to die or get hurt. Please explain to my friends my weakness and let them know what happened. I can't live with all this pressure. I'm sorry for the pain and suffering that I have caused everyone. But I loved Sarah, never hurt her, and I have now died for her. The press have made me feel like a suspect. I shouldn't be. The torture has weakened me to the point I can't take it anymore. I want to die. I'm very sad. Please help my children Norma, Andy and my family. The defence team had also focused heavily on the fact that two investigators working on the case had signed movie deals eight months before Fred was arrested. During closing arguments, Assistant US Attorney Parker called Fred a greedy hypocrite who snuffed out the life of his wife to protect his illicit lifestyle. What about Sarah? And all she cares about is the protection of her children. Only to have her brains blown out over those two little boys. Because of the mastermind over here. Because of the greed. 
the unparalleled ambition and because she just simply was in the way. Defense lawyers, on the other hand, said that there were inconsistencies with Eddie's testimony. They said that the case had been tainted by movie contracts. Speaking of Eddie, who got what he described as the deal of the century, Defence Froelich said, He'll be back out on the streets. Lock your doors, ladies and gentlemen. Lock your doors. Following the closing arguments, the federal jury were sent away to deliberate. They found Fred Tokers guilty of eight federal charges, including racketeering, kidnapping, using the telephone to set up a murder and money laundering. As the sentence was read out, Fred showed little emotion. Sarah's sisters burst into tears and hugged one another. James Manson, his co-defendant, was also found guilty on the eight racketeering charges. He had obtained the liquor licenses for the clubs and was a frontman for members of the drug ring. The ring had been led by Julius Klein, who had been killed in 1992, and Jesse Ferguson, who had plead guilty to his role. Fred was subsequently sentenced to life in prison without parole. James was sentenced to 16 years and 8 months in prison. Eddie was sentenced to just 12 and a half years in federal prison, and then life in state prison with the possibility of parole. As mentioned, the deal that Eddie had struck was described as the deal of the century, because Eddie was a very active participant in the planning and execution of Sarah's murder. It was expected that he would serve just 15 years. With the federal trial now over and done with, Fred would be facing a state trial for Sarah's murder. As the defence and prosecution were preparing for the second trial, Curtis attempted to make a plea deal similar to Eddie's wherein he would testify against Fred in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. District Attorney, however, refused and said that during the state murder trial, he would be seeking the death penalty for both Fred and Curtis. Curtis's trial was held first, and the defence wouldn't be arguing that he wasn't involved because of his confession, but instead would be trying to save his life. Ricky was called as a witness because his version of what happened varied to Curtis's confession. Ricky said that there was no struggle for the gun with another person like Curtis had claimed, and instead it was a single man who shot Sarah from the back seat. Ricky broke down on several occasions as he described what happened. He said that when they arrived home, a bad man was hiding in their house. Uh, don't try to f*** with me. And what do you want? I'm not trying to f*** with you. He said that the man kicked their dog and then forced them into the car and shot his mother dead as he and his younger brother looked on in horror. District Attorney Karen asked Ricky what he did after his mother was shot. I sort of see if my mom was like still awake uh, or she was dead and then uh, I woke my brother up and... You left your brother up? Yeah, it, uh, I thought we had to go get help. It, we went to go get help. Detective Pat Banks testified next and told the jury that robbery was ruled out almost immediately. 
Several of Curtis's friends testified that the night of the murder, he arrived home wearing bloody shoes, while others testified that Curtis had confessed to the murder to them. Joseph Burton, Cobb County's chief medical examiner, was also called to testify during trial. He said that based on photographs of Sarah's car and her wounds, it was possible that Curtis's version of events were true. However, he couldn't determine for sure. Both versions of events were possible. After all of the evidence was heard, the jury were sent away to deliberate. However, the judge had to order a mistrial when one juror refused to convict Curtis despite the fact his own defence lawyer made an unusual move of asking them to find him guilty during closing arguments. Curtis was ordered to be retried. Shortly thereafter, Fred stood trial for Sarah's murder. The evidence during this trial was pretty much exactly the same as the last trial. However, there was a lot of testimony regarding the relationship between Sarah and Fred. Family members and friends testified that Fred had cheated on Sarah numerous times and that he intimidated her when she wanted a divorce. There was also evidence from a sex worker who testified that Fred had asked her around two months before Sarah's murder if there were any drug dealers she knew who would be willing to kill his wife. Why? Is it because your wife's not satisfying you in bed or something? And he said no, it was because she was divorcing him and she knew too much and he had too much to lose. A convicted bank robber also testified and offered a different motivation. According to John Roberts, Fred confessed to him that he ordered his wife to be murdered because he needed her life insurance to pay money he owed to a drug dealer. He also claimed that Fred had offered him $10,000 to kill Eddie before he could testify against him. During the trial, prosecutors had argued that Fred was the master puppeteer who pulled the strings that ended the life of his wife. In closing arguments, District Attorney Charon said that greed, ambition and corruption led to Fred having his wife murdered. The defence countered this by saying that Fred had been suckered by his business partner, Eddie. The jury were sent away to deliberate, and after a day and a half, they reached a verdict. They found Fred Tokers guilty of felony murder, kidnapping and armed robbery. Fred would be sentenced to life in prison. Sarah's family had been hoping for a death sentence and outside of court, they said that the life sentence was disappointing. After the verdict, a Cobb County judge ordered that Sarah's $1.75 million life insurance had to be paid into a trust fund for Ricky and Mike. Fred had fought for the life insurance money for himself. Shortly thereafter, Curtis was given a plea deal wherein he pleaded guilty to Sarah's murder in return for a sentence of life without parole. Curtis took the plea. This meant that Fred and Curtis were sentenced to life, while Eddie was sentenced to just 12 and a half years in federal prison and life in state prison with the possibility of parole. In a written statement, Sarah's family said, We have completely lost faith that the criminal justice system will render the only just punishment, the death penalty. We now know that our search for a just punishment for Sarah was a war we could not win. 
In April of 2020, Mike Tokers died at just 31 years old from a pulmonary embolism. His family said that as Ricky and Mike grew up, they tried to not let their mother's murder define their lives. But for Mike in particular, the sadness stayed with him. Just the following month, Fred Tokers died behind bars from natural causes. He had been wheelchair-bound for a decade due to a neurological disease. He was 67 years old. Both Eddie and Curtis remain behind bars. Eddie served his 12 and a half years in federal prison before being transferred to state prison. In 2019, Ricky sat down and spoke with Oxygen. I mean, I, I don't know another normal. You know, I, I don't I don't know what it's like to have a mom. So when you, you don't know what it's like, you don't know what it's like. Being angry is is tiring. I got a pretty good life. I've had some struggles for sure. I've also had some really cool things. You know, I've traveled the world and made really good friends and have a job I like. Uh, I don't don't meet people and say, hey, my name's Rick. My mom got shot when I was six. Nice to meet you. You know, I, I never wanted it to define my life. Simple. The murder of Sarah Tokers shattered a family, traumatized two children, terrified a city, and perplexed even the most experienced investigators. When Sarah suspected that her husband had been having an affair, she never expected that what she would find would intertwine her in a seedy world of drugs and money laundering. When she opened that safe, in the safety of her own home, she sealed her own death warrant. Well, guys, that is it for this episode of Morbidology. As always, thank you so, so much for listening. I already said thank you at the start of this episode, but once again, a big massive thank you to my new Patreon supporters. The support on Patreon helps to defray the costs of freedom of information requests, archive subscriptions, hosting, and much more. I am eternally grateful for the support. Big thanks to everybody who has simply listened to an episode, commented on an episode, shared an episode. All of the support is very much appreciated. If you enjoy Morbidology, please consider leaving me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you like. Also, make sure you visit us at morbidology.com for more information about this episode and to read our true crime articles. And stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a promo for the amazing true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis 
and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. Thank you.